Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. Thank you so much. Reminder that we will worship the King, the culmination of all of human history, when the Christians gather around the throne, uh, hundreds and thousands strong, and we're going to sing that wonderful chorus, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I hope you're there. I hope you will be there. Take your Bibles this morning and encourage you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Our series continues in Standing Strong, Glimpses of Courage from the Bible. Uh, characters in the Bible who were courageous. Abigail, in my mind, makes that list. So we'll turn now and look at her story for Samuel chapter 25. Just a reminder that in a, a couple of weeks, a couple Sundays from now, is our annual, uh, annual congregational meeting. This is when all people all go, woohoo, that's great. <laughs> oh, well, usually there's not that much excitement for that, but I'm going to do my best to short, uh, preach a short and condensed message. Uh, that morning, so we have plenty of time just to consider some church business before we let you go. It will be held on a Sunday morning, the last Sunday in July. Are you there? First Samuel chapter 25. Let's read the first three verses, kind of to get uh, our appetite set for what's before us in the text. Samuel died, perhaps we could say. Samuel is one of the most well-known prophets in all of recorded history for Israel. He passed away, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great, very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Our story, our story really begins, takes place at least, uh, in the area of Paran, just west of the Dead Sea. Our title this morning is Abigail, the Courage to Intervene. Not to meddle, but to intervene. There is a difference. Nabal's home was in May on this map. Gives you an, a general idea where he lived. This rich man, who we will meet in just a moment, lived in Mayon, but his sheep operation, big rancher, was there just a little bit farther to the north in Carmel. Not too far, 20 miles north of him would be the area of Bethlehem where David grew up. The wilderness of Paran is where David's men are hiding from Saul, and that kind of gives you the context. Well, this morning's message is really about two characters, and uh, well, three really are the main characters in the plot that we'll study this morning. We could really title this message, The Beauty and the beast, because truly in this story, Abigail was the beautiful, bright woman, and she's married to a very rude and spiteful man. Now, ladies, this is not where you nudge your husband. This is not appropriate. You say, that's what I could relate to that. Well, Abigail was a, uh, was a great gal in whom wisdom and beauty were graciously intertwined. We've read the first three verses and we were just brought into uh, really acquaintance uh, with the man Nabal. Verse 3, uh, we get his name. His name literally means fool. We'll see that later. And I don't know why any mother in those days 
would name their baby that. I just don't get that. I don't, I, names had more meaning back in the day, and I don't know why his mother chose to name him Fool, although he did indeed live down to that name. My mother named me Lauren, and I'm still talking to her about that. Of course, once it's done, it's done. Many times uh, here in the South, at least when I go through these drive-thrus, they ask for some reason, they ask your name, and I just say Bubba, you know, that's, or I use my middle name, Mark. The word Lauren means wagon. I said, Mom, could we do better than that? I mean, she says, now, son, what that means, and Mom had her own meaning for that. She said, son, what that means is you're going to be a bearer of burdens. I said, oh, thank you, Mom. I appreciate that. Well, his name meant fool. Not only was he a fool, verse 2 tells us he was rich. Bad enough to be a fool, worse to be a rich fool. Verse 3 says he was churlish, meaning literally a bear of a man. Hateful, unkind, brutish. In this case, a bear of a man does not mean cuddly, but rude, harsh. Two boys were talking about their fathers, and one Boy asked the other, does your dad have a den? No, said the boy, he just growls all over the house. <laughs> I hope that's not your reputation, men. At home, verse 3 said he was evil, opposite of good. He is, verse 10 reminds us later, we'll see this, he's sarcastic. He's likely of the party of Saul. For those who know the story he is not very big on David and David's anointing as the next king. He's little appreciation for the household of David. No doubt he knows of Jesse, although he claims he doesn't. He is sarcastic. He is uh, somewhat uh, unthankful, unhelpful. Verse 11, he's rude. He's stingy and selfish. Again, just so we're very clear about this man's name, Let's look at Abigail's description later in the text of her own husband. Verse 25, would you just maybe have to turn a page, maybe not, but look further in the text. First Samuel 25, 25, let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man, my husband, this man of Belial, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. His mother named him right. Nabal is his name, folly is with him. And so we know that this man's uh, name brings out the truth. He's a scoundrel. So she says, don't regard this scoundrel whom I've married. Here in the Hebrew, as you look up that word, uh, Belial, Belial, its meaning has many nuances. None of them are good. My husband, she could have said, is worthless, wicked, devilish, stupid, ill-tempered, a scoundrel, brutal, pestilent, <laughs> good for nothing, Base, naughty, of no worth to society at all, wretched. You get the picture? That's Nabal. And he is married to Abigail. How did that happen? You ever see a couple together and ask the question, what did she see in him? Or vice versa. Just for starters, he's a fool. He's a rich fool. He's a drunk of a rich fool. We know that from the end of the story. He's at these festival days of harvest. He's drinking himself drunk. By contrast, Abigail, what does her name mean? Her name means 
whose father is joy or the source of joy. Verse 3 tells us she is both beautiful and brilliant. Men, this is where you nudge your wife. That's you, honey. That could be you. That is you. She's the epitome of sunshine on a cloudy day. Don't start humming that, please. She is tactful, insightful. We find out she's resourceful. She's loving. She's quick to respond to needs. She takes initiative. She's perceptive. She's a great student of history. A good cook. She's humble, hopeful, reverent. If you're married to a girl like that, just say amen. Thank you for those three. Amen. There ought to be a resound. Yes, that's my testimony. And if you're single, you ought to uh, maybe start developing a list from the life of Abigail, character, qualities. You ought to look no farther developing a list of great qualities than dear Abby, Abigail. She was trapped in a bad marriage. Again, I asked the question earlier, how does that happen? Well, in her culture, I doubt it was Abigail's choice to marry Nabal. Why do I say that? Because back in the day, back in the Bible times, ladies had, young ladies had very little choice about who they married. The marriages were arranged by parents. Now, I'm still in favor of that. <laughs> but she got linked up with a, well, he was a heel. He really was. And it was probably not her choice, arranged by her parents and the parents of Nabal. And uh, you talk about the opposites getting married. This is, in truth, that story. Well, why does she make it into our series on courage, standing strong? Well, if you have a pen this morning, there are a few characteristics that I think it's important that, uh, that we take a look at in terms of, uh, and just keep an eye on this slide as we, uh, again, set the context for uh, their lives together and principles that we glean about courage. I, I've written three down this morning. First would be this, it takes courage to stay in difficult places. No doubt, this gal was in a difficult place. It takes courage to uh, stand up I didn't say stand up to, but stand up for difficult people. Abigail will do that for her husband. And thirdly, it takes courage to see beyond the present difficulties or problems. You can't help but see the divine hand painting for us in this story a great picture of grace. In this tough marriage, there is a shining picture, a portrait of grace, Abigail's sheltering nature for her husband, who was a louse. And we have to see ourselves in this, in this painting as well, because in Nabal, and often when we read the Bible, we tend to put ourselves, I hope you do this, put yourself there. It was written for our learning. We're there in principle. And Nabal's extreme self, sometimes we relate, oh, well, I must be the, <laughs> I must be the good Character in the story, when in reality, there's none righteous, no, not one. Most of us, I would have to say, would identify, because of Romans chapter 3, with Nabal. We're selfish by nature. 
We're uncaring and unkind. So this story, just like the narrative of Hosea and Gomer, is again a lovely echo of grace. In this marriage, we see a portrait of grace and really substitutionary atonement at work. A sheltering, grace-filled response of Abigail to Nabal. Let me ask you a question. Not is your marriage difficult. We all have seasons, don't we, in our marriage are troublesome times, but is your life a picture of grace? Are you in an unhappy place? You see, all of us, because we're sinners, we're all fools, we're wicked, we're devilish, hateful, disrespectful, prone to wonder, unkind. There is none good, the Bible tells us. No, not one. There's none righteous. But the loving spirit of this godly wife we see as a reflection of Christ himself who has sheltered us, covered us, and intervened for us. Calvary reminds us that when we were guilty of death and the gavel landed on the, on the very desk of the judge, high judge in heaven, this one is guilty sin and death and deserves hell. When the sword was raised against us, as David would later come in the context to kill Nabal and all men in the house, there was one who stepped up in the courtroom and reached forth his nail-scarred hand and said, take my life instead. Kill me in the place of this one. Lay no sin to his charge, and my advocate said, let me intervene. I'll pay the price. Impute my righteousness for this man's sin, my life for his. That's the real story of First Samuel chapter. I gave it away, didn't I? The first, as we begin to look at the details, the real story is God's great grace on our behalf. Again, by way of a little bit of history, as we read this text, the narrative, with your permission, I will update some words and phrases that now carry a more vulgar meaning than they did when they were first translated. But just by way of a review, Samuel is dead. Historically, of course, David and 600 men are running from Saul. David has been anointed as the next king, but he is yet not king. Saul, the present king, is not willing to acquiesce to David. And so David is on the run for his life. He's hiding in, in the rough uh, hillside, the countryside there around Paran. And they're just trying to, uh, to kind of wait it out until uh, David is installed rightly as the next king. He's also providing for Nabal, who we've met in the story already, a bit of a service. He is standing on behalf, he's kind of protecting the shepherds, the sheep shearers, from harm and other robbers and marauders around. So David is providing a service for Nabal, even though Nabal doesn't appreciate it. His army, his men, are protecting this, the flock. And so he sends some messengers to ask for a little sustenance, a little provision for his army from the great amount of supply and resource that Nabal has. He's asking for just a little bit to take care of his army. Uh, Nabal, of course, has much in abundance, and Nabal is not excited 
about that. David simply could have overpowered the shepherds, taken what he wanted, but he didn't. He asked for permission. May I have some food? He sends 10 messengers. And that's where we kind of pick up the story in verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. We'll read through verse 17. And David sent out 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Get you up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. I like the greeting, verse 6, And thus shall you say to him that liveth in prosperity and abundance, Peace be both to thee, peace be unto thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. It's a triple blessing. And now I have heard that thou hast shears. Now thy shepherd, shepherds which were with us, we hurt them not. In fact, we protected them. Neither was there any missing among them or unto them. And all while they were in Carmel, we provided that hedge. Ask thy young men, and they will show thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we've come in a good day. What does that mean? It simply means in a day of festival, a day of harvest, a day of abundance and plenty, celebration. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand unto the servants. You decide, Nabal, but we'd like a little something for all of our work to thy son David. And when David's young men came, they spake to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and ceased. And Nabal responded or answered and said to David's servants, Who is David? <laughs> now I want to tell you something. David is well known. Why? He's killed this man called Goliath. And everybody knows David. Who's David? Just my neighbor to the north. And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. There's a lot of rebels out there. Shall I take my bread, my water, my flesh that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men whom I know not whence they be? So David's men returned their way and went again and came and told David all these sayings. And David said unto his men, Gird ye upon, David is a little upset about this, Gird ye upon every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And, they, and that means they're going to war. And there went up after David about 400 men, 200 uh, abode by the stuff. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he, he railed on them. He disrespected them. The men were very good unto us, and we were not hurt, neither missed we anything, as long as we were conversant, Old English, for just in company with them when we were in the fields. They were a wall, a protection unto us, both by day, night and day, all the while we were keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know, this is, of course, the servant speaking to Abigail. Now, therefore, know and consider what, what thou wilt do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial, I've underlined this, that a man cannot speak to him. He is unreasonable, harsh. So verse 3 tells us she's bright and beautiful. He's brutish and beastly. 6, he's prosperous. He's got an abundance of resource. And uh, so David comes on a good day, the day of feasting, and he comes and, and makes this contact with the people there at Nabal's ranch. And the servant tells Abigail again, verifying the truth, that David's men... We're like a protective wall, verse 15. 
And I want you to notice another character reference about Nabal in verse 17. Again, he simply, and you know this, Abigail. (laughs) You know this about your husband. You can't reason with him. He can't be reasoned with. Well, let's look again at that first point. It takes courage to stay in difficult places. Abigail, uh, we could say this, Abigail made haste. Took to, she's going to make an intervention in verses 18 and 19. She responded, she takes initiative. She knows the life of her husband is on the line, perhaps even her own. She took 200 loaves, two bottles of wine, five sheep ready dressed. These are probably not leftovers, but the abundance of the festival time. Five measures of parched corn, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, laid them on the donkeys, and she said unto her servants, Go before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. I want to say something about Abigail living in an unhappy place. She could have, right? Upon hearing the news that someone was going to come and give her husband his comeuppance, could have said this, great, (laughs) it's about time. This man deserves it. Somebody needs to teach Nabal a lesson. I'm so tired of my marriage, my life, I don't care anymore. This is my way out. Fact is, David is not in a, a mood to negotiate or equivocate. He was going to kill first and ask questions later. In fact, we see that in verse 13. Let's just put on our swords and we're going to battle. This was going to be a shootout at OK Corral, or it's not okay to eat my sheep corral. I don't know how you want to look at that. Nabal was selfish. And it was people just like him that the poet stated this, of whom the poet stated. A man may breathe but never lives, who receives but never gives, creation's blot, creation's blank, whom none can love and none can thank. That's Nabal. And Abigail was living in a horrible, unhappy marriage to a harsh, unthankful, uncaring man, and the thundering hooves of David's 400 men fast approaching was her way out. Could have been. She could have, like Judas said to the servants who were coming, or to even David as he approached, she could have said, thank you. She could have waved a white flag. I got something to say. You're after my husband, like Judas. She could have said, well, let me take you to him. In case you don't know who he is, it's the one I kiss and betray with a kiss. That's the one you want to kill. It takes courage to stay in a difficult, unhappy place and not complain about it. Are you there? It may not again be a marriage. It could be a, dis- a difficulty in life. You're just not in a happy place, and you are chafing under the bit. You don't like it, and every day for you is another stanza of a complaint. Right? I don't like it where I'm living. I don't like it here. I don't like my people. I don't like being surrounded with the circumstances. I don't like my boss. I don't even like the water in the hallway where I work. I don't like anything about my life. Certainly certainly Abigail could have said that. And this was her rescue. 
What about the servant girl in Syria? She could have said, listen, I don't like my boss. I don't like the fact that I've been captured and dragged over here to Syria. And even though Naaman is important, he's not important to me. Could have something the Lord could have said on the cross. I don't deserve this. Certainly, I'm, I'm in a difficult place. Don't like it here. Paul in jail, remember that? Could have said, I, Lord, why? Why this? Why me? Why now? Living redemptively demands that we remain true to our vows, our calling, our commission, even when there are attractive options to excuse ourselves from our painful existence. Do I need to say that again? Living redemptively demands we remain true to our vows, our calling, our commission, even when there are attractive options to excuse ourselves from our painful existence or reality. Lord, I'm praying for, I'm praying for an escape route, relief from the pain. And I think I know the answer. I hear him coming with 400 men. I recall my first ministry, a little girl, ironically, her name, too, was Abby. Fourteen years of age, her home life surprised us to find out later was not a happy place. Abby was not a happy girl. She considered herself plain, almost ugly. And her sister, in comparison, was beautiful, popular. And Abby's home life was harsh. Her dad uncaring, at least she thought. So she took a gun out to the back of her property, a patch of woods, and ended her life. I remember at the funeral, um, one of the men read a note, a goodbye note that Abby wrote. It said this, at least this was the gist of it. She said, my life, it's been unhappy. Even though my life has been hard to bear, too hard to bear, she says. She ended the note, even though my life has been too hard to bear, don't you give up. Don't you quit. Essentially, don't you be like me. I had to think, is God's grace still enough? Is it? Is it? Even in difficult places? Yes, it is. Is his heart still caring and loving? Yes, it is. Does he still know what's best for us? Yes, he does. Abigail stayed true to her station in life, even though it was a difficult place. I encourage you to do the same. Secondly, it takes courage to stand up for, important little word there, difficult people. It takes courage to stand up for difficult people. Notice that Abigail uh, intercepts David. We know that, but beyond that, she intervenes or intercedes for her husband. Look at verse 18. I've read this verse. She made haste. She took off with all this food, 200 loaves, two bottles of wine, five sheep ready for roasting, five seahs of barley, some measure of barley in the Hebrew a sale is about a third of an ephah. You say, that doesn't help too much. What's an ephah? Well, an ephah is about a, a bushel, 
roughly. So if you have five-thirds of something, I know it's not school time yet, but if you have five-thirds of something, how much is it? Well, it's at least a bushel and a half plus. So she brought that as quickly as she could to David's army, and then she brings a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 fig cakes. This gal uh, went to the kitchen, raided the pantry, and came up together with quite a little feast fit for an army. Verse 19, she says, go, men, and she sends the servants ahead of her. She wants to stop the war party that's coming her way. And then verse 20, she rode her donkey. She came down by uh, the covert, that means the cover of the hill. Behold, David and his men came down against her, and she met them. And uh, so, so she, stops, she stops the army. And now verse 20 says that David said, Surely in vain I have kept all this fellow in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertaineth to him. And he has repaid or requited, required me or requited me uh, evil for good. And so he goes on to say, I, will, I, I promise to kill all the men children, those that urinate against the wall. This is an idiom in the, in the Hebrew that is specific to men. In fact, beyond that, it's rather vulgar to, to even read that, but the idea that, that David was saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe out all the men of your family, and, and especially those as gender specific there, that urinate like, like dogs. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying, your people, the men in your household, Abigail, are so uncultured, they're, they're cur-like, they're dog-like, and I'm going to rid this area of all the men in your house. Well, uh, she has to deal with that. It takes courage to stand up for difficult people. Well, she leaps off her donkey. You see that in verses 23. She hasted, lighted off the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and she fell at his feet. Now remember, put yourself there. Here's a very agitated commander, ready to kill, sword drawn. And she says this, verse 24. Again, the point is, it takes courage to stand up for difficult people. Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be, and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience, your ears, and hear the words of thy handmaid. A gentle answer turns away wrath. On me, my Lord, on me let all his evil ways and doings be. Turn your wrath, raise your sword, if need be, against me. I think of uh, Stephen crying out as stones began to fall around him, Lord, lay not this charge to these people. Charge them not with his sin. Acts 6, or excuse me, 7, verse 60. Christ on the cross again, taking the wrath of the world. Father, forgive them. And we, like David, are stopped and staggered by such love for such a man as Nabal. And then we remember our sins and how staggering they are and how much just my sins cost the Savior. And I see in Abigail a type, a picture, not that she could cover the sins of her husband, only God's grace and His forgiving, atoning work 
on the cross could ever do that, but she is so Christ-like here. And I think about our own homes and, and how, how often we're blaming each other for what's happening in an evil sense in our homes. And it's all about you. I, I may be uh, maybe 6% wrong, but you're 94. Honey, you are 94% wrong here. Maybe we don't go to that extreme, but we're so quick to say, listen, it's you. If you hadn't done that or been there or said that, I wouldn't have done this. And here's a gal, she's laying on the dust before David, who is ready to kill. And she says, just, just put it all on my account. Not only is she willing to intervene, she's willing to impute, and she can't do this spiritually, I know that, but she's willing to take upon her the sin of those around her. I, I wonder how this would help your home and mine. I wonder if instead of blaming the college or the situation or the background or the family history, I wonder if we would pray for our erring children Lord, in mercy, would you just forgive and bring them back? And Lord, if there's a price to be paid like the Good Samaritan, would you put it on my account? And Lord, and if you could recover that one, if you could stand in the way of, of a Nabal <laughs> with all of his evil, and she doesn't disagree with David. Yes, he is a fool as his name is. So is he. Yes, I'm not trying to cover up his character, his nature, his evil deeds, his selfishness, his brutishness, his harshness. I'm not trying to cover that up. I'm just saying, Lord, put all that on my account. And Lord, if you just be kindly merciful to my runaway girl or my runaway boy or my neighbor who is so neighbor-like. And Lord, would you stop that sword that surely they deserve? I love the story of a soldier in France who was once drafted into battle during the war between France and England or Britain. And the man protested as he got the notice to serve. He says, I don't want to go and I will not go because I was shot to death two years ago. <laughs> well, the officer says, that just won't cut it. You're alive. What do you mean you were shot to death two years ago? Very confused, the authorities questioned his sanity. You obviously did not die because you're standing before us. And he says, yes, I did. The exception to the rule was that someone could legally serve in the place of another, thereby making that one exempt. The volunteer had to be willing and able. Well, he protested again, you can check the record, sir. Two years ago, my best friend, knowing that I had a large family 
and that he was single decided to go in my place. And he was killed in battle. His friend had assumed his name and address and served honorably until he was shot in battle. They checked the record and it was true. Rather unusual case. But it was referred to Napoleon who decided that the country had no legal claim on that man anymore. He was free. Another died in his place. Here's a a lady willing to assume the culpability that was not even hers. The cross reminds us that someone died in our place. As the sword of David is raised against Nabal, her foolish husband, she says, on me let this iniquity be. So we need to capture that moment. Check the record. There's a wife who's standing up for a foolish husband. She's willing to take the blame for her husband instead of running away from him or seeing this as an escape moment for her. She says, no, no, don't kill him. Let the iniquity fall upon me. Dad, stand in the gap for your children. Ladies, cry out to God for your wayward husband. Don't hate him. Intercede for him. Take the harsh spirit kindly. Beyond that, intercede. Speak for them. Take Take the brunt. Stand on the firing line for them. That's what Paul said. I wish I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren Israel. Well, courage finds its fullest bloom in the next few verses. And we'll look at this as a kind of a last principle. It takes courage to see beyond difficult problems. Verse 30, she'll come to pass. She stopped him now. They've had this discussion. And she's looking forward uh, to the... Uh, to what's going to happen. And she uh, begins to, to remind him. We go back up to verse 28. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She knows something of the promise and the anointing of David, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. Yet a man is risen, she's speaking now of Saul, to pursue thee, and to seek thy soul. But the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life. It's a beautiful phrase. They bound things in those days, secured them that were very precious. Your your life is bound in the bundle of God, David. God has a plan for your life. The Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies, them shall be slung out or sling out as out of the middle of a sling. He, of course, knows about slingshots, doesn't he? And those enemies around you, David, don't worry about them. God will take care of them as a stone flying from the sling. Boy, that, that imagery hit home to David. He had just used his sling not too many days prior. And the enemy was vanquished. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken. Now David has been running from Saul for nearly 10 years. David is like... She is. David is in a rough situation. He's waiting for God to work, just like she is. Well, it shall come to pass, she reminds him, when the Lord's done with this season of your life, and he's going to accomplish all that he's spoken concerning you and appointed thee as king or ruler in Israel that this shall be no grief, this instant, this momentary anger that you're facing, 
shall be no grief to thee if you respond correctly, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. You see what she's saying? I want you, David, to look beyond this present anger you face. Are you angry at someone or something? Bitter, harsh. And you just can't get past it. It's all that you think of. That man owes me or she's hurt me. And that's all you can think of. But think, she says to David, remember that you are going through trials right now. Somebody's offended you, my husband. But for you to go and kill him to satisfy this vengeance of your soul will be a black mark on your history. Remember that God's called you to royal duties. And don't let the anger of this moment derail the bright prospects of tomorrow. Let God handle this. Wow. If you're going through a trial right now, understand something that, that God has not designed you to forever struggle. <laughs> Amen. One day, He's coming back. We might struggle all this life, but one day He's coming back. And he will vanquish all of our foes, sin, death, and hell. Satan himself be cast in the lake of fire. And we'll have a new environment in heaven. But until then, we'll have struggles. But don't let the present difficulty derail the future joys. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.